the sounds of Gary Bartz bringing us into a new edition of the late set, the tune there, Sifa Zote, also known as All Praises. I'm Greg Bryant. I'm Nate Chenin. We welcome you back. Happy Black History Month, and we've got a doozy for you today. We got to sit down with the one and only Gary Bartz. <laughs> yeah, alto saxophonist, composer, band leader, educator. I think you could call him a griot. You really can. You really can. Uh, so important to the music, so special. And one of one, who else has played with Art Blakey, Miles Davis, <laughs> McCoy Tyner, and Max Roach? Yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah. And, and when you hear his sound, that intensity, you hear it right away. And it's a blueprint to... Uh, some cats on the scene even today. It's so true. It's funny. Nobody sounds like him, and yet his his sound has traveled. It's like uh, he is a star, like a burning star, mm-hmm. and uh, the illumination has you know has yielded. Yeah. I don't know. That's a terrible metaphor. But well, <laughs> <laughs> not really, because uh, the stellar regions of Gary Bartz mm. will be honored uh, in just a few months at the uh, NEA Jazz Masters Award Ceremony. That's right. He's part of the class of 2024, and I would argue long overdue. Um, just that point we made, how important he is to the sound of modern alto saxophone. Of course, we think about the classic guys, Charlie Parker and Cannonball Adderley, but something happened with that tenor language that caused folks like Gary Bartz and, and Jackie McLean to assume a new presence Mm -hmm. on the alto saxophone. I mean, you know, critically, when you think of the alto and its properties, um, what really appeals to you most about alto players that you dig? I think it's the voice. Okay. Like the alto saxophone, it is such a, it it has the potential to be both cutting Mm -hmm. and and kind of um, blade-like. Yeah. And then also like warm and inviting, you mm-hmm. know, and I think my, my favorite alto players have both of those qualities, you mm-hmm. know, when I think about Charlie Parker and Cannonball Adderley, mm-hmm. um, and I think about contemporary players, you know, like young Emmanuel Wilkins, you know, yeah. the ability to sort of lean in either direction, and Gary Bartz is a, a master at that, and, you know, some of it too is, as an alto player, he is within the first generation of musicians to fully internalize the language of John Coltrane yeah, and not imitate it or even emulate it. Right. But, but like metabolize and sort of digest and then <laughs> offer his own. But, you know, Coltrane is in there. Yeah. Um, really meaningfully, deeply and meaningfully. And, and as an alto player, um, he took Coltrane's language on the tenor and brought it into a new space. Mm-hmm. Sure did, sure did. I think about Bartz as, you know, a fan favorite. People get excited, you know, when you say the name Gary Bartz or there's a new Gary Bartz uh, effort or recording to come out. But that sound that you talk about, I think about its crafting and the environment that made that sound happen. Mm-hmm. You know, having to play over drummers like Elvin Jones and Art Blakey and Max Roach and right. then on the other side of that, Gary rejecting that term jazz and just saying, hey man, I can put my sound over anything. Mm-hmm. It's adaptable to all black music. Yeah. But that also kind of put him at odds, I think, 
with the critical community. Mm-hmm. What do you think about that? I hate to put you on the, the spot as, as, as our <laughs> well, critic in residence. Well, as a, uh, as a representative of the cursed tribe, <laughs> I, <laughs> I will say that, um, that it's true. Um, I believe that Gary Bartz, you know, I, I don't know that I'd say he was overlooked, mm-hmm. um, but I do think that he stood in something of a blind spot mm-hmm. um, among the critics who came up uh, in his generation. And some of that has to do with the fact that he was not easily slotted into either a, a sort of steward of the swinging hard bop tradition or the kind of rabble rousing avant-garde. Mm-hmm. Both of those elements are in his play, oh, yeah. but he wasn't as easy to categorize or describe as people who fell more firmly into either camp. I believe in the work that critics do, mm-hmm. I think it's important, but I also have to acknowledge those moments where a certain critical bias does obscure things, and and it has an impact. Right. And I'll tell you, uh, in my own background, I did not come to the music of Gary Bartz until fairly late in the game in in my listening, and by mm-hmm. which I mean, you know, I was in my twenties. Sure. But I wasn't hearing him. Uh, the same time I was discovering people like Coltrane and Cannonball and, you know, it, right. it took a while to come around to him. And some of that is because of the fact that he wasn't being championed um, the way that some others were. I mean, what about you? Like, is, was, was your, cause I want to, I actually want to cite a couple of things, but first mm-hmm. I want to hear, you know, it was different for you, right? It was a little different. Um, I came to him through Miles Davis mm-hmm. initially, um, the early seventies, late sixties, you know, when Miles was changing music, Gary Bartz was changing music with him, right? you know, and that sound is imprinted on my ear and in my soul. But I also think about something, not to let the critical community off the hook completely, but think about 1969 and players like Gary Bartz, i.e. Woody Shaw, Mm. Charles Tolliver. They are the next guys, right? But we have this, you know, post-British invasion and the jazz clubs are dwindling, recording opportunities are dwindling, gigs in general are vanishing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So what do you have? this new level of self-determination. We're in the community, the black community. We've got efforts like Strata East Records right. and the East you know, Theater and Cultural Center, places where musicians can earn their living and play to their public, but it's off the beaten path. By necessity, they're working and doing their own efforts, but it doesn't always play well in a New York Times mm-hmm. or a Blue Note Records. Right. I think that's a really meaningful point because, um, on the one hand, it was absolutely critical. It was survival that musicians of Gary's social circle and his community, they were taking control of the means of production. You know, I yeah. mean, they, they, you know, Gary Bartz and Two Troop did record for Prestige Records, right? But there was really a lot of traction, sort of direct to the the black audience. Mm-hmm. You know, and kind of a, a an intentional sidestepping of the the critics yeah. as well. It was yeah. like, you know, we don't you don't get us, so we don't need you. And I and I <laughs> yeah, think that was yeah. that was a point well taken, but mm-hmm. it does have consequences then when it's time for the, you know, the critical uh, analyses. Sure. You know, getting ready to to have this conversation, I was curious, so I looked up what a couple of critics, a couple of the most prominent critics of Gary Bartz's generation mm-hmm. 
said about him. So I'm going to mention Gary Giddens mm-hmm. and Stanley Crouch. Okay. And it's interesting because they both give Gary Bartz his his propers as a, you know, supreme, just his sound, mm-hmm. right? And, and his synthesis of the Coltrane language and other things. But Gary Giddens, who actually devotes a chapter of his book Visions of Jazz to Gary Bartz, he talks about revisiting the two troop albums 25 years later, mm-hmm. right? He says, I found they struck me exactly as they did then. Bartz's playing and writing are often compelling, but the songs and vocals are dispiriting. In a strange way, power won out over lyricism to the detriment of both. Hmm. Although the records are a focused attempt to expand the jazz audience, to appeal even to children, the natural humor and occasional warmth of the earlier records is vitiated by the message. So there's a little bit of like damning with faint praise there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there's know? a lot of it. Um, so so that I found that kind of interesting. And then let's hear from Stanley Crouch. Okay. So Crouch, no surprise, he excoriates Gary Bartz for selling out. Okay. He, he says that, you know, just like Miles, who was the king of the sellouts, you know, mm-hmm. like Gary Bartz was like trying to just get popular with, mm-hmm. with his fusions. But then he, he has this to say. The originality of Bartz's playing humbled both musicians and lay listeners. It wasn't magic in that it changed any of the ups and downs of the nightlife, but the message was so clear that the people who heard it knew what was shaping itself in the air. They had been there for the arrival of the branding iron of art, which left its mark on the moment the way hot metal identifies each one of the herd by leaving the personal symbol of the owner irrevocably burned onto its hide. Mm, wow, wow. <laughs> I mean, you can hear the sizzle <laughs> as he's writing. Mm, wow. Um, so there you have two very different responses right. to the music. And neither is right because you're judging him by an improper standard. Mm-hmm. Gary Bartz is not judged by the quote-unquote jazz um, conscious. He's not um, evaluated by the popular music conscious. Gary Bartz does music, and I think the secret is in the meaning of into, which is the human being and its connection to earth and spirit. Mm. So when you operate in that lane, it's really hard to codify. What is it really? It's Gary Bartz music, Mm -hmm. and it's the path less traveled. It's harder to put into uh, the system, Yeah, but I feel like ultimately he's won because what are our audiences really wanting these days? They're not as concerned about the label as they are the experience. Well, this is, this is the thing I wanted to mention, right? I mean, this music has always sounded good. I think, you know, there was a following for those yeah. two troop records. You know, I don't want to make it sound as if they were obscure and then discovered. Right. They always spoke to the people who, mm-hmm. who they were intended to speak to. But... We are now residing in a moment where the intention and the execution that he was after 50 years ago right. is everywhere. Mm-hmm. And it is, it is arguably the dominant mode of musical exchange. You know, you look at the success of the international anthem label, you look at the excitement around revivals of the black jazz label and Strata East. Mm-hmm. And... The fact that my friend and colleague Marcus J. Moore curated this all-star concert, A Night at the East, as really a 
a centerpiece of this year's Winter Jazz Fest. Yeah. This was a concert that was, I mean, incredibly stacked. And it featured Gary Bartz along with his colleague and, and uh, compatriot Jabali Billy Hart on drums. They were the two sort of um, the veterans of that scene who, who really remembered it, along with tenor saxophonist David Murray. Yeah. And then there were a bunch of younger musicians, also incredible, on that bandstand, including Julius Rodriguez and Shabaka um, and Kwaku Sumbri. Yeah. You know? And so it was this really wonderful expression of community, but it also felt to me like a reminder that Gary Bartz was that far ahead of his time. He really was. He really was. And that is why he's sought out by folks like uh, the Jazz is Dead uh, community. Let's drop the needle on some Jazz is Dead. This is Adrian Young and Ali Shaheed Muhammad with Gary Bartz. Jazz is Dead, <laughs> Gary Bartz with Ali Shaheed Mohammed and Adrian Young, and uh, how appropriate that title because uh, that's how Bartz feels, but he is very much alive as a, a creator of uh, black music. Man, so alive. <laughs> and the two of us um, had such a wonderful time sitting down with him just a few hours before that night at the East concert. We want to thank everyone involved with Winter Jazz Fest and with the Crown Hill Theater for making that space available, it felt just right. It did. To be sitting down with Gary really in a did. space surrounded by artworks made by members of the, the community in Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. And we got comfortable right away. <laughs> <laughs> You'll hear it right here. This is our chat with Gary Bartz on The Late Set. The inimitable Gary Bartz, thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me. <laughs> it's so awesome to see you. Right now, we're in the Crown Hill Theater in Brooklyn. This was very close to a place that we're going to tribute tonight. Can you tell us a little bit about the East? Well, uh, the East was really a very special place for the community to experience music that wasn't necessarily being heard in other places and for sure not the way it was presented at the East. Um, so it, it was uh, very special. It was a part of the Uhuru Sasa school that G2 Weyosi started mm. and he felt that, that they needed a cultural because they were definitely into the music and so he's, they started this club. Mm -hmm. You know, this venue. I wouldn't even call it a club. It was more like a church. It was more like a, a spiritual gathering. Um, and most of the musicians there that they would bring in, and they brought all kinds of musicians in, but it was especially for the, for the um, so-called black community. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's where they put their emphasis. Right. Yeah. You're, you're already helping me to understand um, 
in what you said right there. Mm-hmm. You know, spirit centered, mm-hmm. musician centered, and you're no stranger to that. Your father was a proprietor of 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 music in Baltimore. He was. Uh, tell me a little bit about that and growing up in a scene that was more uh, nurturing and inclusive of music lovers and musicians as the presenter. Mm-hmm. Well, he he bought the club. I I had already moved to New York City. Okay. I moved in New York here in in uh, 1958. He bought the nightclub in 1960. So, you know, I started commuting from New York down to Baltimore on the weekends, <laughs> you know, and come back to New York during the week. So, um, but, it, you know, it, it got, the club got, became successful enough that I worked there with Max Roach. Actually, when I joined Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers, they were doing a week at my dad's club called the North End Lounge. And uh, John Gilmore was in the band. And my dad found out that John Gilmore was getting ready to leave. And so he called me in New York. He said, you might want to come down and sit in with Art, you know, because it looks like his saxophone player is getting ready to leave. And John Hicks was in the band. John was a good friend of mine. He was trying to get me in the band anyway. (laughs) And Lee Morgan also. So Lee Morgan was the straw boss in the band. He was the, you know, he made all the, he was the music director, I guess you could say. So I came down and sat in with him and, and Art, and Lee co-signed it, so I actually joined the band right there, wow, you know, wow. in my dad's club. Um, the first gig was Boston. We did two weeks up at um, Paul's Mall in Boston. But yeah, so. <laughs> That's awesome. You know, when I think about all these affiliations that you've had, mm-hmm. um, there are very few people I can name who spent time with more legendary band leaders. Mm-hmm. So I wondered, in thinking about Art Blakey, and Max Roach, and Miles Davis, and Charles Mingus, uh, and I could keep going. Is there a particular band leader whose approach to fostering unity in the band really spoke to you? Like, who, who do you look to as the, the gold star in that sense? Well, I, I look to all of them because I learned something from each one. I mean, really learned stuff from each one. So, you know, it's, um, it's a study in, you know, like you have old style band leaders, you have band leaders who have their own style, you know, but with art, I learned what not to do. <laughs> really? <laughs> I learned a lot of what not to do. With Max, I learned what to do as far as business, as far as things like that. With Miles, I learned that, I mean, Miles was such a listener that if you were in his band, you were in his family. And, and so that was different from the other band leaders. I mean, it was always a family thing, but really, I mean, like, you, you couldn't do much if you were in this band that, for example, Red Garland's one time didn't show up for a gig in Philadelphia for three nights. <laughs> okay. So, so, you know, he had to get a, sub for the, you know miles had to find a sub you yeah. know the, when red came they were happy okay we got him back you know so that's family you know but that wouldn't happen with max mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. may if you were late he had a problem with me being late you know so each one is different if you were to compare your own approach to any one of those mm-hmm. masters who are you most like as a band leader well i think I, it's a little bit of all of them okay mm-hmm. all right yeah because I take a little bit there, and you know, I like the family thing with with um, Miles, you know, 
Um, I like the way Max presented. You know, one, one thing he would always say, no music on the bandstand. That, I mean, he was really a stickler about that, you know, and I am too. He, he passed that on to me, but I understand why. There yeah. are many reasons why you don't have me. Um, for one, it's a rehearsal. If you're reading, if, mm -hmm. you know, and my thing is like, I don't want to go to the theater and see the actors reading from the script. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's what that, that's what that is. You know, if you can't take the time to remember what you got to do, mm -hmm. don't, don't, you know, you're not ready. When I think about folks on the scene now, like, Logan Richardson or Emmanuel Wilkins and even Kenny Garrett, you are the link. I think that you are really responsible for the now sound of alto saxophone. And when Nate mentioned Art Blakey and Max Roach, I'm thinking in my mind, Gary had to project to get over that, that power. Mm -hmm. There's an urgency in your sound that I hear mm -hmm. from the 60s to the early 70s to now that I feel like is the way to play the alto saxophone. Mm -hmm. What wisdom would you impart maybe to a young person that you find talented that's trying to get their thing together? Can you give us some gems or jewels on the Gary Bartz ethos to projecting and making your sound count? When students ask me, you know, they'll come, they'll say, I, I don't like my sound. You know, I, I'm working on my sound. And so my first question is, well, what do you want to sound like? What, what is your vision of your sound? And that's the first thing, you know, you want to find, well, what do you want to sound like? So a lot of guys that don't know what they want to sound like, but they want to play the saxophone or they want to play an instrument, they let the sound find them. And so they end up with just a sound. It's still a sound, you know, but what we were trying and what many musicians do, we have a, a vision of what we want to sound like. And so then we have something to go towards. We have something to work towards to develop that sound. I know Farrell Saunders and I, cause I, I you know, I always wanted a bigger sound. Um, Farrell and I would go out to the park, you know, West Side Highway, and, um, just play loud because you can play loud outdoors, you know, and no matter how loud you play in the house, you, you, you always don't want to play as loud as you can play, you know, because mm -hmm. you wouldn't be living there long. <laughs> so, so, um, but we would go out there and we would try to play so loud that we, we would looking over and you see the cars going up and down the West side highway. We would try to play so loud to make some, you know, make somebody say, what was that? You know, of course that never happened. You know, that's not going to happen. But that's how loud we were trying to play. So we were trying to develop that sound, you know. So, you know, you have to know what you want to sound like. And and as a follow-up to that, I also noticed when you mentioned, you know, practicing with Pharaoh, Into the Wind, mm -hmm. you know, there's no harmonic underpinning. It's just mm -hmm. you're responsible for your rhythm mm -hmm. and for your melody. Mm -hmm. How much of that ethos or idea factors into you building the Into Troop band in the early 70s? Well, what I wanted was a band that could play anywhere. That's why we didn't have a piano, because you can't take a piano in the jungle. You know, you can't take a piano into the bush. So I wanted instruments that we couldn't go anywhere and play. So that was the first thing, you know. Um, and the second thing is, and I've had people, you know, I remember one, one gentleman and I think it was in Germany he said you know 
those into troop records. So I really didn't understand. I really didn't like it so much. And I said, well, I wasn't writing it for you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, re- I wasn't. You know, I was writing it for my community. And I hope everybody likes it. You know, but if they don't, I understand because I wasn't really addressing this to you, you know. But if you were astute enough, you could understand what I'm trying to say, you know. So, you know, he had a problem. (laughs) (laughs) We must get closer to the depths of life. But be aware that it takes courage and strife. Expand your mind. I do think about audience in, in that time frame because when when I first saw footage mm-hmm. of you on stage with Miles at the Isle of Wight Festival, mm-hmm. it kind of blew my mind yeah. because I knew the music, you know, I understood that this was a moment where this music was was reaching, mm-hmm. you know, young audiences and, and big audiences. Mm-hmm. But until you see that camera sweep across that sea of people yeah you know but it's funny because at the same time like who is in that audience and and what does it mean to them is it like is it just cool in that moment is it part of like a a vogue or does it really like connect on a spiritual level Mm -hmm. and i feel like as an artist sometimes those distinctions don't really register and sometimes they're screaming at you Mm -hmm. you know and so when I think about those records, it always rings to me of this very foregrounded desire to resonate in the community, you know, and to be at street level. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, it's, it's kind of like what, what hip hop is and because it, it comes from the street. It's a folk music. Mm-hmm. It, come, it, it started with the blues. It started way before that. But there are different ways of communicating you know, like for me, when it, like I don't call set lists, you know, because I don't know what I don't know the audience yet, you know. So I I don't want to be so bold to to think I know what everybody, you know. So I kind of f- try to feel the audience, and so when I'm, you know, so as I'm playing, I'm I'm feeling the audience, I'm hearing them, you know, and I'm seeing what the re- listening, hearing what the reactions are. So then that depends, and and also the way the music is going depends on what the next song is going to be, you know. But um, but as, as far as the true troop is concerned, like because that's this was in the '60s. This was the '60s was a very volatile period. I mean, we got all our leaders were killed. You know, President of the United States was killed mm-hmm. in public, in public. That's the hardest place to kill somebody. <laughs> you know, yeah, but mm-hmm. they got away with it. Mm-hmm. You know, they got. I mean, all these people, and they got away with yeah. it. Come on, man. Yeah. But that, that's all another story. But, but so, I was. I was really thinking about joining something like the the Black Panthers because I felt like our community did not need, we got enough musicians because almost all of us can do something, you know, musically, because music, to me, is nature's religion. It's not a man-made religion. Mm -hmm. It comes straight from nature. Sufis say that the Big Bang happened because whatever the mass was, when it reached the note 
that it was in tune with, it made it explode. The way Ella Fitzgerald can sing a note that whatever the glass is in tune and make it explode. So, and I believe this, so music is our religion. So, um, but at, at that time I didn't realize that, you know, so I'm thinking about the Black Panthers, but through my um, interactions and working with and being around Max Roach, um, Charlie Mingus and different, Donald Byrd and Gigi Grice, mm -hmm. you know, who were um, thinking differently, you know, and that made me say, well, oh, music can be powerful. It can be. I don't need to join the Black Panthers to do what they were doing. Music can also do that, and that's what I do, so let me try to do that with the music. So that's how the Two Troop really came about. It's it's had an impact on me for sure. Um, I still play those records uh, people frequently. People tell me, yeah. People tell me like they say, man, well, I got through the Vietnam War listening to that. Mm -hmm. You know, listen to the little old man rocking. You know, mm -hmm. all that kind of stuff. So that's what we were trying to do. You know, yeah. I, I think about right around that time too. We were talking off mic about um, the Omodra Ensemble from Entume mm -hmm. recorded yeah. at the East, and I just. Mm -hmm look at the lineup my goodness mm -hmm. you and bassist buster williams and yeah. drummer billy hart mm -hmm. i don't want to call all the names but but you you get my point this is a powerhouse mm -hmm. ensemble yeah. and i think about today in the collaborative spirit so many challenges we've always had economic challenges but there's something about coming together on one accord with one mission with one mind you know how Coltrane was saying he wanted to be a force for good. Yeah. He really felt that beyond the music, mm -hmm. he could change the core of a and person. You, you can. You can. Not just music, but it can be done. But, um, I mean, who wants to go through life doing that, trying to teach somebody else, you know, how to be a human being? That's something that your parents need to teach you, <laughs> you know. Mm -hmm. But, you know, when, when the occasion arises, you can then do that so that's what i was trying to do with the music that's just like he was you know i mean i you know i'm influenced by him i mean trying i met these guys i met sonny stitt i met max Rose. i sat in with sonny stitt when i was 14. oh my I, goodness I sat in with with max and live to tell the tale <laughs> uh, well, yeah <laughs> oh well he was you know it, i didn't try to sit in with him i i found out that he was doing a matinee in this club in Baltimore called the Comedy Club. And so I asked my dad if he would take me. So he said, sure. So we go down there, place is packed. You know, it's the afternoon, kids are there and everything. And so um, Sonny's playing, man, he gets on the mic. He said, well, ladies and gentlemen, I understand we have a gentleman, you know, a young man that'd like to come up and play with us. And I'm saying, oh, <laughs> man, this is going to be good. I want to see. And he called my name. Wow. And I said, oh, my Lord, man. My dad had sneaked his horn, sneaked my horn out, and went up and told him he would like to, you know, which I didn't want to go up. But, but I went up there, and he took me, being a nice gentleman, Sonny Stitt was. <laughs> <laughs> he took me through all the keys on the blues. Wow. So fortunately, I didn't know one key from the other. They were all the same to me. Because, mm. you know, at that point, I, it was, I'm all ears, you know. So I went through every key, you know. So he, he said, well, okay, I think he's got potential. <laughs> That's great. That's great. <laughs> and, and so then I sat in with Max, and, um, and Max, same thing. He took me, he said, Cherokee. It's, you know, I'm 
I started because of Charlie Parker. I knew everything Bird did. So I went through it. Didn't know the chords, but I could hear the chords. Mm-hmm. I could hear it. I didn't play the wrong notes. Mm-hmm. I was hear the chords. Mm-hmm. That's why I say listening is more important than playing because I listened so hard I could hear what notes were right, what notes were wrong, and so I didn't play them, you know, on purpose anyway. So, you know, he gave me his number, and that's how we connected when I moved up to New York, you know. I met Train when I was 14. I met Train and Benny Golson. They were working, I think, with Earl Bostick or somebody, and they, they were supposed to do two weeks in Baltimore. The second week I canceled, so they were just hanging around, and they came to a jam session I was at. And that's how I met them. And I didn't know who they were. And I didn't realize it until Benny Golson many years later said, yeah, you remember when me and John met? I said, when? You know, he, I said, that was y'all. But, but listening is, is the most important thing, you know. There's something really crucial in, in what you were just saying. You know, the, the pure receptivity that you had as a young person and as you say, all the years, um, but also your musical erudition was intact, but it was it was unschooled. It was self-developed. And there's been a shift, you know, in the culture of this music where the instruction is, you know, it, it can be pretty formalized. It can even be really rigid. And most of the musicians who I hear and respond to have found a way either to integrate that into their humanity or to kind of absorb it and then reject it, you know? (laughs) Um, And so as someone who has been teaching for a really long time within institutions like Oberlin, what are your thoughts about how the music has been sort of institutionalized and how that transmission of information has, has come out of the communities, you know, in many cases and, and been put, you know, corrupted. Yeah, mm-hmm. because it's being taught by a group of people who it's not their music. So that's why Dr. Logan started the program at Oberlin, because he realized it's being taught by non-musicians, really. You know, I mean, they can't go out and do what they're talking about, you know. So he wanted musicians who were still doing this, you know, and that was the whole thing, because that's how we learned it from the musicians that came before us. You know, I mean, it, it was passed on to them, you know, to us from them. And that's the way it is. Griot, we're, we are a griot culture. You know, they say, well, they, they didn't write books. No, we had historians. That's part of our culture. So that's what the music is. And so, but we were always looking for our own sound. We, we did not want to sound like anybody else, you know, because there's no money in that, you know. I mean, I've had times where I've gone to record dates and they say, well, we want you to sound like Grover Washington on this cut. Hmm. And I said, well, get Grover Washington. <laughs> sure. <laughs> you know, cause so, but that's, that's the way they think, they kind of think, you know. But we were always looking for our own individual sound. And if you're looking for that, you have to you have to hear the future and that's why miles was so important because he always heard the future Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. um playing i mean we hear the future all the time in playing you Mm -hmm. know we uh, you know if we're listening but you have to be listening you can't be just hearing it you have to be listening it's a whole nother thing from hearing you know but that's why i say listening is more important than playing Mm-hmm. It really is. 
It's the most important thing because it, you can have a band of, say, it's a quintet. Three of the musicians are listening to everything. Two are not. They're listening to themselves or they're thinking about, you know, some girl in the audience. It's not going to work. Mm. All five have to be listening together, just like a basketball team or any great team. Everybody has to be on the same page. Mm -hmm. And that's why the greatest bands in this music that and, and the innovative bands have come through a working band that was together for at least two years. Takes about two years. And then you can really, you know, start to um, do things that nobody ever heard before. You know, because the musicians are reaching, they're trying to do things that they, see, the, uh, for me, the, the job of a, artists musician because we're not just musicians we're you know you have musicians who they're musicians that's what they do mm -hmm. play on broadway do weddings they mm -hmm. do circus you know whatever but we, we for us we're artists that music is our medium so it, it there's different meanings to we're not it's not just about entertainment necessarily you know it's about more than that so mm -hmm. um that's why the, the listening so only if you can hear and I think hearing is like a fingerprint. So everybody hears different. If you can find out how you hear, nobody can sound like that. Nobody can hear like you. That's why you got to be able to hear, you know. And and you can only do that by listening. And you got to hear that. But you know, I say now, you know, when I meditate now, I hit one of my bells, one of my singing bowls. I hit it, and you hear it ring, and then you. Hear and it disappears. I say that's where I want to go. <laughs> where, wow. where it where it disappears to, that's where you have to find out where what you hear. You know, so man, that's really powerful. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. I really appreciate how, like Max Roach before you and Miles Davis, um, you rejected the term jazz early on, and as a listener, I think. I'm amazed at how that allowed you to just genre weave, I'll just call it that. You could do swing one day, you could do a backbeat one day, odd meter, completely free. Um, there was no limit. And I feel like a lot of people our age and even younger have resonated with you because your catalog is so vast. It's got a little bit of everything. You can pick what you like or, or, or like it all. Um, I'm really curious with this new designation and congratulations uh with your nea oh, you. designation um you probably should have won it 10 years ago but there's so many peers that you're now with with this designation but the word is still there and i just wanted to get your thoughts are you conflicted about it or at all i don't want to get you in trouble but i'm just <laughs> curious like how do you feel about being designated an nea jazz master well, I, I just say NEA master, you know, so. Mm -hmm. There it is. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. NEA, call it what you want, master. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> well, they call us what they want anyway, <laughs> you know, so that's a whole nother thing. <laughs> but congratulations. That's awesome. Thank you. Thank that's you awesome. very much. Um, and, and that, uh, you know, Greg touched on this, but the fact that so much of your cohort and and these are like your brothers you know think about Jabali Billy Hart and we think about Buster Williams I mean these these are recent inductees right. to this society it has to feel really nice 
to be joining your gang, you know? Well, it does. I, I you know, I kind of, I didn't expect it. I didn't think that they would choose me because of my politics, mm. you know, and because of some of the two true records, you know. Um, so I, you know, I was resigned to that. That's okay, you know, but I was pleasantly surprised when they, when they did vote me in. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but but you have to realize, and I I hope I don't uh, get myself in trouble. But politics has a lot to do with all this stuff. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. As far politics has a lot to do with what's number one on the record charts. It has a lot to do, you know, in everything. Politics is involved. Um, sometimes um, they choose the right things. Sometimes they don't, it, you know, they choose things because of the politics. So, so you, you're keeping that in mind, you know. Mm -hmm. But it's always, it's always a good thing to, to receive an honor. So I, I, re, I do receive it humbly, you know, yeah. even though they want to call it something else that I don't <laughs> sure. They See, they don't really know what I'm doing. They're choosing me, but they don't really know what I'm mm -hmm. doing, really, because yeah. they're saying this is what you're doing. <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll keep listening. And we'll keep learning. Thank you for dropping your jewels with us and trusting us. Uh, it's been our pleasure to talk to you, uh, Mr. Bartz, for the late set. Thank you. Well, thank you. It's my pleasure talking to you guys, too. <laughs> What a joy hanging out with Mr. Bartz. Uh, once again, congratulations to him for being honored as a 2024 NEA <laughs> master. <laughs> uh, we, uh, we had such a, such a pleasure, uh, and, and uh, I hope you enjoyed that conversation. Um, but before you go, uh, give us a few more minutes of your time because we want to dive back into a recurring segment that we like to call This I Dig. That's right. That's right. First on the docket today is not a piece of music, but a film, American Fiction. Mm. Go see it, everyone. Jeffrey Wright, uh, Erica Alexander, um, Tracy Ellis Ross, Sterling Brown. It's a really awesome commentary on uh, something parallel to... Uh, Lee Morgan riding the Sidewinder. I know that's a, a weird way to, to get at it, but <laughs> <laughs> what happens when someone's um, castaway becomes their most popular asset mm -hmm. and all of the complexity around that? And and doesn't Jeffrey Wright play a character named Thelonious? He does. Uh -huh. <laughs> I know how they got you in the yeah, theater, Greg. they did. They did. <laughs> it's a great work. I hope it wins all the awards, but... Uh, if you have time, definitely make a chance to, uh, or definitely make plans to see it. Yeah, no, that's on my list. I can't wait to check it out. And my pick is a piece of music, and it is something I know that you are excited to hear, Greg. Uh, Alice Coltrane, the Carnegie Hall concert. Bring it. This was recorded in 1971, about a week after she released her album Journey in Sachidananda. It features 
Pharaoh Sanders and Archie Shepp on saxophones uh, and Ed Blackwell and Clifford Jarvis on drums, Talking among others. Stellar regions it's, right it's, there. It's, it's pretty crazy. Um, Jimmy Garrison and Cecil McBee both on bass. <laughs> oh, wow. I'm sitting here with you, Greg. I can't not mention the bass players. Embarrassment um, of riches. <laughs> it's it's a really special a really special document, and you can actually hear one of the four tracks from this album right now. Um, Impulse has released it as a single. This is titled Shiva Loka. Once again, Alice Coltrane, the Carnegie Hall concert. It will be released on March 22nd, and I believe in the next episode of The Late Set, we might have a few words to say about it. We will. We will. If you're enjoying The Late Set, please give us that five-star rating on your podcast delivery service of choice. Uh, we also love feedback. Drop us a line and let us know how we're doing. And you know what? If you can... Uh, tangibly show your support, WRTI.org. Click Donate Now and become a WRTI member to ensure that the late set keeps going and going. Tell them that Greg and Nate sent you. The Late Set is a production of WRTI and made possible by WRTI members. It's hosted by me, Nate Chenin, and Greg Bryant. The show is produced by Alex Arif. Production assistance today from Melanie Spiegel and Kayla John. Special thanks to the folks at Winter Jazz Fest and the Crown Hill Theater, and a shout out to Matt Merowitz and Tinku Bhattacharya. WRTI's operations manager is Joe Patty, and assistant director of production is Tyler McClure. Associate general manager for content and programming is Josh Jackson, and Bill Johnson is WRTI's general manager. Stop by WRTI.org to see everything else that's happening here in Philadelphia and beyond. We will see you soon. <laughs>